0: Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label Kill Rockstars. On today's show, we're discussing a current issue that could have long-term implications for musicians and the industry. The streaming giant Spotify is being sued in two separate lawsuits. One is a class action suit being brought by David Lowry, frontman of the band's Cracker and Camper Van Beethoven, and blogger at thetricordist.com. As listeners to this show might remember, we interviewed David last summer about the very issue that's at the heart of his lawsuit, Spotify's failure to request a mechanical license before making his music available on their service. The second suit has been brought by musician Melissa Farrick, and she joins us now to explain her position. Melissa, thanks so much for joining us on The Future of What.
1: Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for asking me.
0: So today we're talking about these Spotify lawsuits, but before we get into them, I kind of wanted to touch on the fact that you have had this really interesting career trajectory that I think it's important that people know about because it's sort of becoming more common in this day and age. You were on a major label in the 90s, Mm -hmm. then you released some records via indies, and now you've started your own independent label.
1: right?
0: And you are releasing your records via that. In fact, you had one just last year, yeah. 2015.
1: Yeah, totally. That's exactly right. Like, I remember when I signed, I was with What Our Records after I was with Atlantic. Atlantic is the major label, but I got dropped off of them in 95, and then I signed with What Our Records in Boulder. That's Rob Gordon's company. But it was really at the very beginning stages of, in, of like real indie labels, it seemed to me anyway. I mean, we had independents that were subsidiaries of major labels, you know, like Lava right, <laughs> and, and, you know, Beggar's <laughs> Banquet and things like that. But they were really major labels because they had the major label money and they had the offices and the same infrastructure. But like actually true independent labels, it was kind of a new thing. And, you know, that was the, the dawn of the 50-50 deal. And it seemed like a really good thing. You know, I was able to continue to retain all of my publishing, which I've owned the whole time. And that was really cool. And, but it was hard to go from $150,000 recording budgets to $5,000, <laughs> <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> which I know, you know, about. So like, how do I make a record for $5,000? But I did it, you know. I made two records and with them, and then in 2000 I opened my label called Right on Records, and that was really only because other people were doing it, you know. And I and I kind of was like, I think I think the big turning point one was when Amy Mann, when her label like didn't want to release Magnolia, which ended up winning an Oscar. I was like, there's something terribly wrong with the right. music industry. Right. And Annie had been doing it on her own since the beginning. Right. But when when people like Amy Mann kind of went off and did their own thing and I was like, Som- something is, I have to pay attention here. And so I could have stayed with What Are Records, but I remember asking my dad, I was like, that record Freedom, which has the song Drive on it, which is kind of like my most popular song. It. I made a record for five grand, you know, and I recouped within, I don't know, a couple of months or something. And my father was like, well, would you bet $5,000 on yourself? And I said, yeah. And so that kind of answered the question for me. So my parents actually gave me a credit card with an $8,000 limit, and I incorporated the company online and put out a double live CD because I figured out that that was the cheapest way to make a record. And it was what I was the best at, it seemed. Like my live shows seemed to be what people really liked. So I did that. I put out a double live CD and recouped immediately and got my first check ever for royalties from the distributor that I signed up with called Goldenrod Music, who put my records in mom and pop stores all over the country. So wow, it was kind of crazy. Yeah, I was like, wow, look at that. <laughs> but, then, but then, you know, everything changed again in, you know, 2004, when iTunes really blew up, 2004, 2005. So, so I've learned a lot. I've learned, like, you know, how many records to press. And, you know, I, there are two albums that almost put me under that I made. And when I was still pressing 30,000 units, because that's what I was selling, physical units, And I still have like, you know, 10,000 of each of them on my third floor. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Tell me
0: about it. No, it's and it happened so fast. You know, it really went from one record to the next. We had that same problem. I mean, I think all Indies did in when in the big sort of crash of 2008, 2009. You know, it's like I put out a record in 2008. It sold 25,000 copies. I put out their next record two years later. It sold 10,000 copies.
1: Yeah, it's like it literally went in half. Now I sell, I think my physical sales are right around 10,000 units. But, you know, it takes, which is still really good. Those are physical Right. You know, it takes a year, a year to do that, you know. And then maybe in the end, I'll press another 5,000 if it was a popular selling one and just to have on the road with me and stuff. But it's hard. I did vinyl for the first time on this record, and that was really fun, and it felt like a total success. Good. I think I was smart. I only pressed 500 of them, and I did the first 100 as, like, limited numbered and signed editions. Perfect. But I was able to sell for a higher rate, and those hundred paid for the pressing of all the vinyl. So,
0: <laughs> you and I, I have the exact learned, same job, you know? basically. Like, everything you're saying is yeah. just what I do.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: right? Yep, totally. Yeah,
1: but I don't do it for a whole bunch of bands like you do. It's awesome. It's, it's, it's just exhausting and, and tiring, like, all the business stuff, which is hard to find time to write more and, like, full albums, too. Like, I wonder... I'm kind of over the full album thing right now. I mean, I, I you know, ask me a six-month question. i <laughs> change my mind. But, like, I'm starting to think that I'm just going to, when I do finally write another song, because I usually don't write for, like, a year after I put a record out. I don't know what happens. I think I just go into, like, this business dead zone. But when I write something again, I think I'm just going to put it out, like put out singles, and then when I compile, you know, a dozen songs, I'll press a certain number for fans and for live shows and then just kind of move along like that. Seems the most efficient way to do it anyway.
0: That is awesome. And I I think this is all really important to hear for our audience because, you know, they need to understand that you're a musician who fully understands the business side, you get it, and you also see where your money's coming from and where it's going. Like, you know, you're spending the money to press 500 vinyl records. Like, you know exactly how much that costs and you know what you can make when it comes back. And so this whole Spotify thing matters a lot to someone like you because you actually know where your money's coming from. Yeah. So if you want to... Give us a little idea of how you got into this whole thing.
1: Yeah, sure, totally. So, to try to say it kind of succinctly, what what happened and what maybe a lot of your listeners will relate to is, and maybe some won't. But I had a longstanding publishing administration deal since 1995, actually, with Wixen Music Publishing, which is a really reputable and fantastic company that I. For me, for the ups and downs that I've been through, it meant a lot to me to retain that relationship because it was the only one I had retained. Mm -hmm. I've been through a lot of labels and managers and agents, and that's just the wreckage of my past. You (laughs) know what I mean? Like, that's just... Me trying to fix, you know, like a record doesn't work, it's the agent, so I fire them. You know, I never, I had a, it took me a long time to learn that it's not anybody's fault. Right. (laughs) But anyway, so my relationship with, you know, having my publishing administered by this internationally recognized administration company felt good to me. It made me feel protected and and blah-de-blah. And so I had made two albums with a company called Empress Records, which is a label based in New York. And unbeknownst to me, they didn't pay me any mechanical royalties and they uploaded one of my entire albums without my permission and therefore without Randall's permission on um, one of these kind of like uh places where like, for instance, one of my songs ended up on breaking Amish without me even knowing that that was like a possibility of that someone could do And they just Whoa. took it for free. It's like a warehouse where you can put music up. You know what I'm talking about? Like the sure. master. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Label yeah. So the owns
1: the master, but I own the publishing, but they didn't ask me and they put it up anyway. And it was, you know, it was not, I don't think it was intentional. I don't think it was like willful on their part. They just did it thinking that it was okay to do and it wasn't. And I lost my administration deal with Randall and that really hurt. <laughs> it was like something I had held on to. And, and so that really hurt my feelings and concerned me because I had never administered my own publishing. Right. So that's how the Spotify thing started. So what happened was I, they, you know, I was informed officially by Wixen that they were going to be letting me go. I got this letter of, departure, you know, and then we will continue to collect through October of 2015. But as of October 2014, you are no longer with Wix and Music Publishing. So basically, in January of 2015, I started going through my catalog and getting my registered copyright numbers, my registration numbers from the Library of Congress, getting my ISRC codes, I created this Excel sheet, you know, that was like alphabetized, I'm a total Virgo about this kind of stuff. And it was like really, really (laughs) helped me feel like I was getting organized to learn how to administer my publishing because I thought, well, this can't be like a P, you don't need a PhD to do this. There's got to be a way to learn how to do this. So I started teaching myself. And, and of course we have streaming royalties now that we have to, you know, make sure that we're getting our streaming royalties. So I knew about TuneCore and I was also knew about this other company called Audium which I had heard students at Berkeley tell me about actually. So I had known about TuneCore already, so I thought I would check into this other company, Audium, just to see like what the difference was and which one I liked better. And this dude, Jeff Price, called me, and I really just liked him. That's, you know, this, a lot of this business is about whether or not, you know, I want to work with people I like. You know, I want to work with people that I want to go to a cookout with. I liked the guy. I liked his energy and so I sent him my whole catalog and I said, you know, let's, I'm looking at these Wix and checks and I'm looking at these, you know, this, they're like 36 pages, you know, it lists every song and I see Xbox and I see Pandora, but I don't see Spotify anywhere, like nowhere. And so he was like, well, let me take a look at it. And, and he looked it over and he was like, Melissa, you're not, they, they've, they're playing all of your music without any mechanical licenses. No, one, no one's gotten a license to play this music over, over at Spotify. This is like, this is complete infringement on your copyright. So that completely blew me away. I was shocked. I was really shocked because my assumption was that they had gotten one through Wixen, you know, that they had reached out to Wixen and retained a a license and that everything was okay. So I, I emailed Spotify and the Harry Fox agency. And actually just one little side note about this in this 2015, January through whatever, when I was, it was actually before that two years before that, I tried to see if I could sign up with the Harry Fox Agency, so that all of my songs would be in there, just in case someone wanted to cover one of my songs, you know, like one of these fluke things.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And what's unfortunate and a total irony is that, you know, because Harry Fox Agency is is Spotify now; they're they're together, and their claim is that they can't find the artists, that's why they haven't gotten the licenses. But I tried to sign up with Harry Fox Agency, and they don't allow independent publishers to have accounts. Well, there you <laughs> go. You know, so it's just, <laughs> it just doesn't it just doesn't make any sense. So I emailed them and I said, hi, you know, my name is Melissa Ferrick. I have these albums out. I was with Randall Wixson. I'm getting my house in order. Could you please send me your notices of intent or copies of your licenses for my material? Thanks so much. And a guy from Harry Fox wrote me back. Hi, Lisa.
0: Oh, my God.
1: <laughs> you know, my name, my name. Yeah, totally. Totally. Hi, black. Lisa. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, my name's not Lisa, but that's okay. And basically just said, Randall Wixson never licensed any of your catalog with us which basically informed me that they have no licenses and that they seem to think that it's the publishing administrator's job to give them licenses without them asking, which is completely not true. So, wow. Yeah. And I've learned a lot, you know, so this, this law firm, Gradstein Marzano, Henry Gradstein is the lawyer that's bringing this case to court and it's a class action lawsuit. And I had a conversation with him and he asked me if I would be willing to be the lead plaintiff, you know, just in it, all that means is that I'm the lead plaintiff and that I stand up for the class, you know, and the, the class will be thousands and thousands and thousands of independent writers and that I stand up and try to get us compensated fairly for the willful infringement that Spotify has been doing for almost four years now. So, right. And
0: just so our listeners are completely crystal clear. The, the deal with getting mechanical licenses, that's incumbent upon the service. Like when a new service is born into the world, a new technology service, in, and they wanna use music that's owned by people, they need to go and get licenses to use that music. And they need to get a master side license, so that would be either the label or the artist, depending on who owns the master side. And they need to get a mechanical or songwriter or publishing license which is generally owned by publishing companies like your former publishing administration company right or it's owned by artists right and what basically has happened is that Spotify just didn't do that that's that's what's being alleged here they just didn't do it and they willfully didn't do it right. and they figured oh we'll pay later when people catch us but what they ended up doing is then playing your music however many you know allowing your music to be uploaded onto the server so that people can stream it however many gazillions of times, right. then they say, oh, well, you know, we didn't pay you because we couldn't find the publisher.
1: But they don't have Google over there. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I think that what's at the heart of this, too, you know, is like the estimate is that around 20 percent of all of the content on Spotify is unlicensed. And that's, you know, this is a company that is now estimated to be worth eight billion dollars. And you know, how they sell advertising is by saying how many subscribers they have and how many people they're going to reach. And how do you reach people? Well, you have a huge catalog, right? You know, so you say we have, you know, 50 million songs. Well, if 20% of those songs are up there illegally, you know, in other words, they're, they're making money off of this number off of their catalog. So what they're selling to, advertisers and to listeners is is actually false, right. So this this isn't about the subscriber. It's not that I don't like Spotify or the service that they offer. I love the idea. I think it is the way people listen to a lot of music. I just as I as every other artist I've ever spoken to, I would just like to get paid my royalty. you know, I'd like to get paid. And you know the the idea of saying you know a notice of intent is kind of like, that's really what they should have done. Sent notices of intent to all the all the publishers. Listen, we intend to, you know, upload your stuff, and they have 30 days to do that. And when they if, after those 30 days are up, streaming your material, they they are no longer then allowed to get a compulsory license through like Harry Fox agencies. So that would be the company that they would go to to get the, the license, right? Because they're pretty much the only show in town as far as like where you go. If you want to cover a song, you go there and you punch in how many records you think you're going to sell and you pay a fee to allow you to cover the song that you want to put on your record or whatever. It would be the same thing. And the problem is, is that since the Harry Fox agency doesn't allow independent publishers to put their catalog up there, (laughs) there's, you know, they're saying that there's no way to find us or to send a notice of intent. So even if they had sent a notice of intent, they didn't get a compulsory license. Now it's been more than 30 days. So now legally it's Spotify's job. They have to now get direct licenses from the publishers. They can't go through a third party and it is willful infringement and, you know, willful infringement, the, the high end of that, as far as, you know, from a legal standpoint, the high end of financial compensation for that is $150,000 per infringement. And there's 125 of my songs that have been streamed on Spotify with willful infringement. Wow. So that is isn't that is an enormous amount of money. Right. I'm never going to get that kind of money and neither are you or any of you. you know, none of right. us are going to get that, whoever has. But I believe that we will win, you know, this case and that every indie publisher will get a check, you know, for whatever it ends up being, you know, 200 million is set at, they think that there's a million songs. So that's $200 a song. So I think that some of the backlash that I've, you know, it was kind of upsetting to see some of the backlash that was directed at me, like, Oh, you know, this is a nobody, nobody even knows who she is. She's trying to get famous. It's like, it has nothing to do with that. This has nothing to do with how many times you've been streamed or how famous you are. You know, this is about, you know, my copyright that I went through the process of legally copywriting my song at the Library of Congress and getting a registration number and getting ISRC code, registering it with my PRO, and all this work that I do, you know, is supposed to protect me. And just like it protects the top pop writer on the charts right now and the law you know is upheld for both of us equally right you know one person doesn't get more money just because they're more popular it's not about that it's actually very american and it's it is. it's a you know it's a civil it's a right that we all have you know you invent something you should be allowed to protect that invention and if someone steals it from you or uses it without you agreeing then you should you know you should be compensated for that
0: yeah totally well, Melissa Farrick, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much for joining us on The Future of What?
1: Thanks, Portia. My, my pleasure.
2: None of this really makes sense. So just come in and close the door. Let's leave it all for something else. What it is we're in for, sitting all the way across this room. Just gave myself to you, and every love I've ever had, I want to thank for getting me to you. Every love I've ever had, I want to thank. Our friends collapsed under their own
0: That was Careful by Melissa Ferrick. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on iTunes. To find out what's coming up next, follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW. Now back to the show. Howell O'Rear is a music litigator who joins us from his office in Nashville. Howell, welcome to The Future of What.
3: Hey, Portia. Thanks for having me.
0: So, you got some background information for us before we get started?
3: I think that, you know, David Lowry is, is what I would call a perfect plaintiff and that he is not only smart and active and knows the industry, he owns his publishing himself and his songs are popular and he's willing to fight. This would be a different lawsuit if he was not the lead plaintiff in the case. And he's willing to take on these causes, and, you know, they're going to have a hard time challenging his rights because I'm sure that he's done it the right way in filing this lawsuit.
0: And I also get the impression, and you can correct me if this is not your impression, that he's not really doing this for the money. He's not going to be happy with them just handing him some cash. He actually wants them to change the way they do business.
3: Well, I don't know. I've never spoken with him. I I'm, I don't know what he's in it for. But you know, if I think people can say they're not in it for the money all they want to, but if somebody offered him a lot of money, he may reconsider. <laughs> but I don't know. He's certainly in a strong negotiating position as the lead plaintiff here, and I think what what his lawsuit is asking to do is for the courts to certify a class of people that are similarly situated as him, and to allow that lawsuit to open up to anybody who's in a similar situation. And that's a complicated procedural process. I imagine that Spotify is going to try and, you know, the lawsuit just began, so there's really nothing to to report other than the fact that it was filed. There's a lot of litigation that's gonna happen if the case continues over the next few years. And the first would really be whether or not they can get the class certified as a class action. And, you know, I'm, I'm happy to talk about that if you want me to, but I know it's going to put your listeners to sleep.
0: <laughs> well, I think what would help is if you just give us your opinion of the potential for success of this lawsuit.
3: Well, that's that's a difficult question, the way you frame it, without kind of going into what the of how the lawsuit was filed. I think if, you know, if he would have filed this lawsuit as an individual and not asked for a class action to be certified, it appears to me on the papers that it it would have been a slam dunk. And, you know, most of these copyright infringement cases are really governed by whether or not the plaintiff secured a timely copyright registration. And most people that I encounter do not register their copyrights You're not required to do it. You technically have a copyright once the pen hits the paper or the music hits the CD. But if you want the enhanced benefits, the statutory damages, what everybody talks about, the attorney's fees, you have to have a registration before the infringement begins. So my guess is that most people, you know, somebody, a songwriter who's got a song on a CD or or stream that's being streamed maybe 50, 100 times a year, they're not going to have... even if Spotify didn't secure a license from them, they're not gonna have a registration. So their damages are limited to actual damages. And you know, actual damages is what they would have had to pay if they would have secured a license, which we know is gonna be fractions of a penny. So in order to get the real bargaining strength here is you have to have your copyright registrations lined up before the infringement began. And it's going to be hard to predict what is going to happen if the class gets certified. I mean, you know, I've seen in past copyright class action, you know, there's, this one's really unique, but they're going to have to show a lot of things on common questions and, and whether or not these questions of law, in fact, are common to their, the members. And nobody's going to have their ducks in the row. As well as is the David Lowry does, and that's gonna I think gonna be a problem. They're they're fighting a plaintiff that's gonna be difficult to get rid of. So you know I think that's their main issue. Yeah.
0: Well, Howell O'Rear is a music litigator in Nashville. Howell, thank you so much for joining us today on the future of what?
3: Thank you so much, Portia. Hope I didn't bore everybody too much with this. <laughs> it's gonna be awesome. <laughs>
0: Boy Soprano by Shushu. You're listening to The Future of What. If you're enjoying this program, like us on Facebook and become a subscriber on iTunes. Chris Castle is a lawyer based in Austin, Texas, and he joins us from there right now. Chris, welcome to The Future of What. Thank you. So you are on with us today to help us to understand this pending lawsuit against Spotify. Right. Yes. Yes. So can you just sort of dive in and and give us a little overview of what's going on?
4: There's two lawsuits. One is filed by David Lowry, and the other is filed by Melissa Farrick. Both of them are similar in that they're both class actions for copyright infringement for essentially the same reason, which is that Spotify, according to these plaintiffs, has not been... Obtaining mechanical licenses for many songs. Uh, Some press reports say 10 to 25 percent of the 30 million songs that it distributes. And in David Lowry's case, I'm more familiar with David Lowry's complaint. In David's case, he had actually published a blog post in the October before the December filing of his lawsuit in which he said. Here's all the songs that are on Spotify that were never licensed, and here's the copyright registration numbers. Now, that should have been a giveaway (laughs) to Spotify, because if there's a copyright registration number, that means David is findable in the Copyright Office records, which are the ones that matter for purposes of obtaining a compulsory license. And we can talk a little bit about what that means if you want.
0: Yeah, we're trying to help people understand, and some people who listen to this radio show are not in the music industry, so they <laughs> will try to make it as clear as possible. Okay. We have talked multiple times on this show about how there are two sides to every song. There's the master side, which is the piece of recorded music. Right. And there's the publishing side, which is the underlying song rights. So what we're talking about today is the publishing side only. That's right. What's known as the mechanical royalties. Right. And the problem... That David Lowry and Melissa Ferrick are asserting is that when Spotify began playing people's music, they did not go through the legally required step of obtaining a license for the mechanicals on their songs, for the publishing side of their songs. Is that correct?
4: That's correct. The published side of their recordings. Yes, that's right. So basically what that means is that under under U.S. law, and we're, I think, the only ones left now, although the Austra- Australia may still have it too, but we're the only ones left that have a compulsory license or a statutory license. And what that means is that under U.S. law, the Congress has decided, and by the way, this is not a surprise, they decided this in 1909 and, and what currently exists and copyright law is essentially a revised version of what has been settled law for uh, over 100 years, they decided that if you have had a song recorded before, you as a songwriter don't get to decide who gets to record it in the future. In other words, the government requires you to license to all comers if 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 someone else wants to record your song or distribute your song, distribute a recording of your song. So, for example, if you were to, in the physical world, if you were to have a soundtrack album in which a recording of your song was included under a license, then the fact that you're not the featured artist under that soundtrack deal, cannot prevent the soundtrack company from releasing their soundtrack album, even if it's on a different label than the one that originally released your song, because they can go and get a compulsory license to do it. Because Spotify is making reproductions and is essentially distributing these recordings, then Spotify has the obligation, in this case, as does Rhapsody, as does you know any interactive on-demand service, to get their publishing cleared, which would be to take advantage of this compulsory license. So the way that would work, if you're Spotify, is you would send a simple notice to the owner of the song copyright, and if you can't find that person, then you would send that notice to the copyright office, and you'd say, copyright office, I can't find this copyright owner. They're not, their name is not available in your registry, and most people don't stop there. They they look elsewhere as well. But for copyright office filing purposes, you say they're not in your registry. So I'm telling you that I'm using this song, and I'll just use it. And then I'll accrue the money. And if they show up later, I'll pay them the royalty. So what Spotify failed to do was that last step. They failed to send the notice to the copyright office. It appears. And that's what David Lowry is alleging. And he's also alleging that they did it willfully because he was easy to find in the Copyright Office. And I, I read a press report of another person who went to look for Lowry just to see if he could be found. And it took that person, I think he said, 10 seconds to find David Lowry <laughs> in the Copyright Office registry. So, you know, whether what happened to David is exactly what has happened to everyone else, I don't know. But they're going to have to define the class, which I think will probably end up getting defined as all songwriters whose songs were used on Spotify without a license who have registered the songs with the copyright office, something along those lines right that will that's a bit fluid, you know, and uh-huh. um, that'll get decided in in the court, but it will probably look a little bit like that, so does that kind of Answer your question?
0: It does. And I think for ease of understanding, I'll just say that the part of David Lowry's complaint that makes the most sense and is the easiest to understand is if Spotify wanted to play David Lowry's music, they needed to make that quick search and send a notice saying that they were interested in licensing the music. Before they uploaded that music onto Spotify so that people could stream it.
4: Well, that before they made it available to the public. For exactly. Sure. And then they noticed the notice would not really be that they were interested in using it. It's that they intended to use it in reliance on the compulsory license. And oh, by the way, we're doing this. You can't stop us. But we're just letting you
0: know. Right. That's an important part for people to understand is that. It's not like he had a choice. He, did he, didn't, he doesn't get a chance to say, no, you can't use my music. All he's saying is, you needed to tell me right. that you intended to use it before you actually made it available for public consumption and payment. You know, I mean, right. They basically monetized his music before they told him that they intended to get a license to use his music. That's right. And that's his, that's his point because he's saying, well, if it happened to him, who knows how many hundreds of thousands of other artists they have not notified and therefore That's right. have not paid. And,
4: or maybe even millions.
0: <laughs> right. I mean, I we mean, just don't you, know.
4: It's, it's hard to know, of course, because they don't tell you, right? I mean, you would think, or I would think anyway, that if if, if I, and I've run business affairs for a record company before, so I, I, if it were me, and I, that, I say that in an educated way because it has been me, if it were me, I would just post a list and just say, look, you know, these are all the people that we are holding money for. Please come get your money. And, you know, by the way, sorry we didn't comply with the notice under the Copyright Act, but this is the next best thing we can do.
0: Now, what is Spotify's defense? What are they saying in their own defense here?
4: Well, they haven't really said anything specific What they have about Lowry or Farrakh. What they have said is, we intend to pay every penny, and that we've hired the Harry Fox agency to do the song research and to request licenses and now we realize that there's a big problem and you know music publishing in the United States is very difficult it's hard to find these people and so we're going to build our own database so that we can do it more easily and that you know that's not an excuse right that's there, there already is a registry. It's called the Copyright Office. You can search it online. It may not be perfect. It may not be this what I would consider to be something of a unicorn database, which has never existed in the, in the history of recorded music. Yet we've managed to stumble along, you know, <laughs> to this point without it. You know, this this idea of a central database where any, anyone, anytime, any place can go look up online who owns what. That doesn't solve the problem of people not doing it. Right. <laughs> which is appear- which appears to be what happened here. And it also doesn't solve the problem of people getting paid, which also appears to have happened here. Right. So you're looking at these guys at Spotify putting up a lot of music and I would bet you that the music that they can't find the publishers on isn't going to exclusively be, you know, really small folk, but could be And probably, you know, may never have been played, right? Right. Or may have been played, you know, less than 100 times. And they're taking on statutory exposure for statutory damages for that? Right. Really? Yeah. Does that make any sense? You know, so there's a lot of different bits and pieces to this that makes you think that this is not just a situation where there's some new releases that snuck through or, you know, a 16th of a song on a sample or, you know, somebody who wasn't responsive. This is, you don't get the millions of songs this way, right? Right. You get the millions of songs because you decided not to look. Yes. Yeah. Or not to look too hard.
0: So, Chris, just to wrap up, what's your feeling about what's going to happen with this lawsuit?
4: Well, I think that it's unlikely that it's going to end up being about the money. I mean, my sense of where Lowry is coming from on this is that, He's not trying to. He's not doing this to get a big check for David Lowry. You know, he's doing this because it's unjust. And of course, this is not the kind of plan if you want to have when you're a defendant. You know, because you you'd like to be. A, I always used to say, don't ever let it get to the point where you can't just write a check. You know, well, you can't write a check in the case of David Lowry. Right. So I think they may as well kind of cut to the chase and just publish a list of everything they're holding money on. And and get it over with. I mean, if you remember in '04, Elliot Spitzer had a multi-year, but when he was Attorney General of New York, had a multi-year investigation into the music business, where at least those labels and publishers owned the rights. You know, they wasn't they weren't exploiting these things without rights and just had uh, unclaimed royalties. So there was a, there's some very succinct guidelines that he put out that the labels have lived with all these years, and I don't see why Spotify couldn't live with those now to just try to start cleaning this up. And I think that's the first step, is they need to come public about what they've done and who they're holding money for. They say they're holding money, so why keep it a secret? Why not just tell everyone? And I think that would go a long way to making people feel better about them and ultimately lead to some kind of resolution, because you kind of have two steps, right? You have to figure out what to do about what they've done and then what to do about, to go forward. Right. So I think that what they've done part is the simplest thing to clean up. And fortunately, we have the benefit of laws on the books to deal with what they should be doing going forward. So the answer for the past is start by telling us what you have. The answer for the future is comply with the law.
0: Chris Castle is a lawyer in Austin, Texas. Chris, thank you so much for joining us on The Future of What and tackling this crazy question.
4: Great. Thanks a lot, Portia.
5: The scream, the stifled ringing in my ears. I have been encased and pinned by you, collector gloating. But from this day's I awake, I find my shout, my shattered will. And my prison disappears. I have become I don't you? and to feel
0: Judgment Day by Riddle the Sphinx. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on iTunes. To find out what's coming up next, follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW. Christiane Kinney is a lawyer and a musician. Christiane, welcome to the future of what?
6: Thank you. Thanks for having me again.
0: This is your second time. I love it. We're gonna we're gonna start a club for people who've been on the show more than twice. <laughs> you get to nice. you get a free t-shirt. <laughs> and a pizza.
6: Ooh, now we're talking.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so today I wanted to talk to you because of your exciting dual role as both a lawyer and a musician about these two lawsuits that are being brought against Spotify, right. these two class action lawsuits. We have spoken to a couple other lawyers, and we've also spoken to Melissa Farrick, who is the plaintiff, the lead plaintiff in one of the cases. So we're, I think we are pretty clear for the audience, on what the cases are about. But I'm interested in your perspective on these cases. Like, as a musician, how do you feel about these cases? And, you know, where do you think this is going to end up?
6: Well, it's really an interesting thing. I I do have the dual role as an attorney and a musician. And I, I tend, when I look at a lawsuit, and especially a class action like this, I tend to look at it with my lawyer hat on. This was... Kind of an inevitability because they were very honest and upfront about their business plan. And, you know, I love to tell people look, when you're creating something like a Spotify, you know, when we're at these music tech companies, I'm like, look, there is this business model that is build something cool and work it out on the back end. And that type of business model has become more and more popular because the licensing structures are so difficult for people to grasp and understand but but there's a real danger in that and the dangers are that you're going to have these types of lawsuits coming up and going after you as far as what it means to me as a musician you know i mean i struggle the same as a lot of artists do with the amount of money that you're getting per stream but the reality is this is a streaming world. It's something that the consumers like and obviously love. you know how many how many active users does Spotify have now? I think it's like fifty million or more, and they were working their way up quickly so you know it's it's not going away, but this is a real risk to them. This is something they have to take obviously really seriously because I mean you obviously have the two hundred million and the one hundred and fifty million in damages that they're going after, but beyond that. This is a class action. So the attorney's fees are going to be enormous. And that's an upfront cost to the attorneys. But what the musicians get on the back end, Melissa will get something. David will get something. Most musicians aren't really going to get a huge benefit from this, except that it provides a mechanism for the conversation to move forward. You know, obviously Spotify was... Already, I'm talking too much, but Spotify was already talking in December about, you know, building this publishing admin kind of system and database so that we could handle all of this. That's going to take years. So these are mechanisms to try and figure out a workability around the mechanicals for these interactive streaming services.
0: So you say you think most artists are not going to receive much, if anything, from this (laughs) This lawsuit.
6: The attorneys Um, are gonna receive a lot. And and honestly, you know, I mean that's it's somewhat fair because they're fronting the costs for this and class actions are very expensive. The attorneys will see receive something, the core plaintiffs will receive something, some musicians will receive something, but I think to get a class certified, you know, we're probably gonna get letters in the mail in three to five years giving us notice as a class member, allowing us to opt in, we'll probably get to select a $5 one-time payment or maybe a one-month premium Spotify service. (laughs) You know, I mean, that's the type of things you get in these class notices. So for the, the mass of us, I think the more interesting thing with these cases is what's going to come of it. You know, I mean, these are, like I said, these are almost, they enable the conversation to expand beyond you know, fitting a a circle into a square hole right now, which is kind of how we work around these streaming issues with the copyright laws being what they are. So something's going to happen from it. Whether or not we're going to get our global database of all publishers ever... It's been tried so many times, so I doubt that you know it's a pie in the sky of that. But you know,
0: maybe. Do you think it'll change practices at Spotify though? Do you think Spotify starting now will actually start trying to get mechanical licenses, or at least sending ROIs to musicians before they put their stuff up on the service?
6: You know, it, it's a difficult thing because they already chose their business plan, their model for this in the, in the states in whenever they started, 2011. I think they came here. And they had a choice at that time that they could have launched with a smaller library of songs and they could have just gone with the songs that were licensed, but they didn't. And so they chose a model that had a risk involved to it. The risk now, I mean, if you pull some people say, well, they just need to provide the list of all of the songs that aren't, that they don't have mechanicals for. And now that they've been sued, they're basically just, you know, they're not going to gift somebody a list of all the class members, Mm. (laughs) but but I do like the idea of that, you know. I mean, it can be like Sound Exchange. I've seen friends on Sound Exchange whose names, you know, come in alphabetical order with mine, and I'm like, oh, hey, you're owed money for, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. And it's a, it's a different hybrid, but but that works, you know. I mean, if you're looking for people, really honestly looking for people, I don't think it's pragmatic at all to serve, you know, the special notices on the Copyright Office because that was really created for a system where you have a label that maybe has an artist doing some cover songs and they have to clear one or two songs, or even if it's a full album of 10 or 12 songs that you have to clear these for and don't know somebody. I mean, as an attorney, I make calls a lot and it's pretty easy to find rights holders. I looked up David. I looked at Melissa pulled up BMI.com, you know, found them right away in the repertoire search database, found Melissa also on the ASCAP database, because sometimes people switch, it could be another person with her exact name, found both of them in HFA. And actually, it's interesting, I heard, I don't know if this is true or not, but I heard that Spotify had outsourced this initially when they launched here to Harry Fox Agency to deal with the mechanicals, because they knew it was an issue. But it's such a grand scale. So it's not like you can have an attorney clearing every song. I think they have 20 million songs or more and there's 20,000 being added daily. So when you get on that level, that's why I think this is a conversation starter, honestly, of how do we deal with this? I, I do think that, and <laughs> did answer your question, but I do think Spotify will change their practices. And they already, I think before the lawsuit, had announced that they were going to start Working on this global type of publishing admin system, this database. But again, that's that's going to take years. But you know, rather than outsourcing it, I think they do have to take that on themselves and spend a substantial amount of time and energy making that work.
0: So one of the other lawyers we spoke to, said that he was speaking about David Lowry's suit in particular, and he said if David had brought this as an individual, this would have been a slam-dunk, open-and-shut case. Mm -hmm. But because he chose to go with it as a class action, it's going to really take a really long time, and there are these hoops now that have to be jumped through for musicians to prove that they're part of the class. Like, you have to actually... You know, you have to have your copyrights registered with the Library of Congress. You have to have, you know, X, Y, and Z to prove that you're actually a member of the class. Right. Why do you suppose they actually decided to go with a class action rather than a an individual suit?
6: Because there are mass violations happening here and the attorneys can make more money. <laughs> and ultimately it, you know, let's let's just be on the side of the attorney for, for a moment <laughs> and assume that their intentions are valid. You know, they can protect the little guy. Not everybody has the ability to bring an individual lawsuit like this. Not everyone's going to have the resources. Not everyone's going to have the access to attorneys. So if the goal is to protect the musician, it's very smart to bring a class action this type of case because it's there is a good possibility that they can certify a class here. You know, the damages are somewhat easy to establish. With with interactive streaming, there's a formula involved, so it becomes a little more complicated, and maybe they can argue on the other side, okay, well, this person's getting one million streams, but this person's getting fewer, st- you know, mm-hmm. two streams. Right. <laughs> They're not very good. <laughs> right. You know, so so there are complexities. Doesn't make David's lawsuit any less valid. It just means that ultimately a class might not get certified. And that, you know, the, the class action work that I've done in the past, usually on the defense side of things, we have gotten classes decertified because there's a lot of hoops to jump through. But I think in the end, the reason for it is really to protect artists that couldn't bring an individual lawsuit or that wouldn't, you know, and to and to make this more of a global conversation for artists.
0: Well, Christiane Kinney is a lawyer and a musician. and. <laughs> She's joined us today from her home, and we really appreciate that because I love the fact that you can bring us both perspectives. So, Christiane, thanks so much for being on The Future of What? Oh, thank you, guys. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Melissa Shu Shoo, Shoo, Riddle the Sphinx, and of course our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by the Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. For more info on the shows, check out our website at KillRockstars.com slash the future of what. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McClain. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rock Stars. See you next week.